0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our TOSIG phase one and sarcoma programs. Today I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Ziad Schwinn, a urologic oncologist in the Glickman Urological and Kidney Institute. Dr. Schwinn is here today to talk to us about transperineal biopsy of the prostate and advances in screening for prostate cancer. So welcome, Ziad. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So maybe to start, give us a little bit of a a background. What's your role here at Cleveland Clinic?
1: Yeah. um, So uh, I'm a a urologic oncologist here, primarily treating uh, prostate, kidney, bladder cancer, as well as testicular cancer surgically. That's my clinical focus. I do have also a research focus in prostate cancer biomarkers detection, including uh, the transperineal prostate biopsy, which we're going to be talking about today, and and finding ways to better detect and better identify uh, prostate cancer. All right. So when we talk about better detect and better identify,
0: um, let's start with that. So there's, a you know, anytime we have a platform to talk about screening, there's a lot of confusion about prostate cancer screening. So kind of what's our position on screening and and maybe give us a little background on that right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Prostate cancer screening saves lives. We know that uh, from many studies that have been showing a reduction in mortality in prostate cancer with screening. Uh, we do know that uh, people you know, typically want to be starting screening around age 50 and typically going yearly until age 70. Some men with higher risks of prostate cancer, like African-Americans, or those with a high, uh, strong family history uh, should probably start screening sooner. It's a blood test uh, that you should be getting uh, either through your primary care doctor or your urologist. We know that uh, people aren't getting their screening uh, on time. And a lot of times, particularly in the COVID era, where people have kind of put their screening to the wayside, um, understandably so. Uh, We've seen a a greater proportion of people presenting late, you know, after the cancer has already spread outside of the prostate. And by then, we're not talking about cure, not curing the prostate cancer, but we're talking about just trying to control it. And that's something that we know that uh, when we can detect it early, we can, uh, if it needs treatment, treat it and try to prevent the development of metastatic disease. So that's important.
0: And another thing you mentioned was, um, better diagnosis. And part of that is diagnosing patients that actually need biopsies, actually need to be treated, right? So absolutely,
1: um, absolutely, are we, are we actually treating the, the right people? Prostate cancer is common. It, about one in eight men would develop it in their lifetime. And it's probably greater than that because we know that a lot of men die with prostate cancer and of natural causes. So that we know that there's a lot of indolent prostate cancers out there and we don't actually want to find those types of prostate cancers we want to find the kinds that are potentially life-threatening those that need treatment because we don't want to over-treat patients and that's why it's important to kind of identify those who are at higher risk of having more aggressive prostate cancers and that's with blood tests also imaging and other biopsy techniques like the transperineal prostate biopsy to try to identify the type of cancer that requires treatment rather than the kind that would likely not cause you any harm. And then we're going to turn our attention to the biopsy itself, but
0: um, Dr. Eric Klein was a a guest on this podcast series in the past and talked about a test called ISO-PSA. So tell me a little bit about where we are with
1: that. Yeah, iso-PSA is a a really great blood test uh, biomarker for prostate cancer. It's really good at differentiating those who have more aggressive cancer that require biopsy and potentially treatment. It's a way that really is a smarter PSA test. It's a PSA-like biomarker, and there's a few others like it. Iso-PSA is a very fantastic one. Another one is called the Prostate Health Index. Uh, that is a very similar type of a blood test. And we use these to get more information on the, the likelihood that there could be more aggressive prostate cancer. But we are routinely using that here at the Cleveland Clinic uh, for determining who, who needs to go on for a biopsy. All right. So patient
0: gets screening, they have an elevated PSA. We may or may not have uh, a situation where they have an iso-PSA to, to guide biopsy. It's time for a biopsy.
1: Um, tell tell us about the options from a biopsy standpoint. Yeah, you know it's it's very interesting. Kind of, I'm very interested in, in, in medical history and kind of identifying where where things started from. Um, The first uh, biopsies were actually done with a finger guidance. You know, you try to feel the lump with your finger, then you can guide the needle into the prostate and identify the the prostate cancer tissue that way.
0: That doesn't even sound a little bit dangerous. It sounds
1: terrible. (laughs) Nowadays, we have ultrasound guidance and we can actually do MRI and ultrasound fusion and we can identify these lesions in real time. Um, The most common type of prostate biopsy is the transrectal biopsy, where the needle actually goes through the rectum and into the prostate. That's the way over 95% of prostate biopsies are done in the United States. We do know that there is a actually high risk and not surprisingly of developing an infection. About 7% of men can get up an infection even with giving antibiotics beforehand and that's something that uh, in 3 3% of patients actually can develop a severe life-threatening sepsis uh, infection which requires admission to the hospital and people have dedicated their whole careers in trying to prevent these types of infections and no matter what type of antibiotic we use or what other cleaning devices that we use when we do a transrectal biopsy we know that there's going to be a risk of an infection A newer approach, uh, which is actually kind of a blast from the past, too, that people were doing back in the day, but that's kind of fallen out of favor, but now is coming back to the forefront, is the transperineal prostate biopsy. It's instead the needle goes through the skin into the prostate, and that has greatly reduced the risk of an infection and uh, also does not need antibiotics routinely to give beforehand. So we're doing uh, better what's best best for patients in reducing the risk of an infection and also studies are showing that it's better for cancer detection as well, that the transrectal approach typically could not sample. So you get better cancer detection, lower risk of an infection, and it's well tolerated by patients. So from the
0: the sampling of the prostate, that has to do with the fact that there's portions of the prostate that are further away and you're not able to, to adequately sample?
1: Yeah, the 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 top of the prostate, the anterior zone of the prostate traditionally is very difficult to sample through the transrectal approach, but with the transperineal approach you got a straight shot to it and as a, and as a result you can have better detection of cancers that could be lurking and hiding in that part of the prostate. So, better sampling of the gland in its entirety and it's safer. So, it's a it's a no-brainer.
0: I'm going to ask what might be a naive question is why didn't people adapt that approach instead of the transrectal
1: approach? It's a very good question. Um, A lot of it has to do with training uh, because as I had mentioned that back in the day, people would do the transrectal approach because they could feel the prostate gland with their finger. But now that we have ultrasound and better imaging techniques, you know, really it's just a a matter of time before this is going to be the primary form of prostate biopsy moving forward as people, you know, buy the instruments and also have the training to start to do them. Thankfully here at the Cleveland Clinic uh, we're a leader in that and we've been able to offer that to patients and not just at the main campus but also in the region. So people come from far away actually to get this type of prostate biopsy here. And that's because it's getting out there that patients would prefer the safer biopsy approach.
0: And so is this something that's primarily being done only at
1: um, academic centers or the large urology practices? Or Yeah, that's a great question. In general, uh, it is only being offered at the larger academic centers. Few urologists do this type of prostate biopsy. Uh, In other parts of the world, in Europe, it's actually become the dominant form of prostate biopsy. And so most folks overseas can get that approach. But in in the United States, it's really just a handful of centers. But it's growing uh, rapidly in terms of where people can get this type of prostate biopsy. From a patient perspective, is this about the same in terms
0: of um, time, recovery, um, you know, certainly the
1: infection risk is lower, Yeah, pain, yeah. pain, things like that. Patients tolerate it really well. And that's something that can be done either under local sedation, just uh, lidocaine, like the normal prostate biopsies are done, but also we offer sedation for those folks um, who, who may have a lower pain threshold. Um, but it's well tolerated. The cost is the same for patients because it's billed the same as a regular prostate biopsy. And so it's uh, it's just a matter of uh, being able to offer patients that service. And is there uh, any time
0: you mention costs? Of course, insurance comes to mind. Are there any issues with coverage?
1: Generally not. It's uh, it's the exact same cost for patients, and in general for the healthcare system, it's cheaper because we're not having to pay for people going to the hospital uh, for severe infections. Also, we don't have to pay for antibiotics beforehand. Uh, so in general, it should be a cheaper form of uh, prostate biopsy for the the healthcare system. Are there any downsides? Well, it, it's really just a matter of uh, finding the places that can offer them. It, it can be in in some some patients that don't have access to them may have uh, have a hard time getting that type of prostate biopsy. But really, the national organizations that create guidelines for prostate cancer and prostate cancer detection. They're even starting to adjust the wording of those to say that the transperineal biopsy should be preferred. Uh, the European urologic uh, guidelines have already changed saying that the transperineal biopsy should definitely be the primary form. So it's really a few downsides. It's something that um, really is just a matter of finding the right places that can offer them and, uh, and doing what's right for patients. Is there anything um, re- regarding patients themselves, are there
0: uh, any patient selection factors? Is there, is there any are there any times when you might see a patient
1: and they better suited for one type than another? Well, really, we 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 always offer both approaches for patients, and uh, we say we've got you know the transrectal approach or the transperineal approach, and um, we we do talk to patients about the pros and cons and. It's a very easy sell for patients. They they generally think intuitively and correctly, so that when you stick a needle through through the rectum where there's bacteria, stool, and then that goes into your prostate, uh, there can be very easily seeding of of bacteria into the prostate, and that's where infections originate. So it's an easy sell for patients. Patients are driving this uh, as well. They're coming. You know, from far away to to try to get this approach, and and I expect in the next five years that this will be probably the more dominant biopsy in the United States. So this is a this is a growing and shifting uh, phenomenon, and it's something that uh, you know it's great to be part of a, a great team here at the Cleveland Clinic um, to to be able to have the support to do that and offer that to patients. Excellent.
0: So yeah. we've talked a little bit about screening. We've talked about biopsies. We're going to talk. In, in a minute, a little bit about more of the now you know you have um, prostate cancer, right. what do you do? But I guess just really quickly, is there anything that um, is kind of on the horizon that you find particularly interesting, either from a, a diagnosis standpoint, we mentioned I, iso-PSA and some things, anything from imaging, anything yeah. in that arena that you find particularly exciting oh, it, right it's, now?
1: It's, it's great. There's such a, a boom in, in in new technology and new research in prostate cancer detection um, you mentioned Dr. Klein, you know, he's part of a, a growing initiative to do kind of a liquid biomarker where you can detect DNA and tumor DNA in the blood, and that includes for prostate cancer. So you can screen for, you know, dozens of types of prostate cancer just with a single blood test, and that's something that, um, you know, is is on the horizon but still not quite quite there yet but uh, from the imaging standpoint for prostate cancer there's another type of PET scan, a PSMA PET scan that we offer here at the Cleveland Clinic uh, that can detect uh, prostate cancer in those men who may have a concern for spread and it's a better way to identify who may have metastatic prostate cancer and I anticipate that that's going to be on the forefront for localized cancer as well and we can do fusion biopsies with also, the PSMA PET scans, in addition to MRI, which is another great new technology to detect uh, prostate cancer. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of great, uh, a lot of great technologies on the forefront. Also, another another great growing area of of interest is active surveillance for prostate cancer. As you mentioned, what do you do once you have the diagnosis? Well, we know that a lot of people can be safely watched, and that's where active surveillance you know comes into play and that's another major interest of mine uh, finding ways to avoid over treating prostate cancer and finding ways to to make sure that we're not missing a window of a cure um, and also not having to over biopsy those people because they'll need to be on surveillance sometimes you need to check in and finding ways to not turn the prostate into a pin cushion is another good uh, good way to you know help patients quality of life when you think about PSMA scans, certainly as a medical
0: oncologist, you know, I'm, I'm usually thinking of them as someone who has had a definitive therapy, they've had radiation, they've had surgery, now their PSA is going up, and it's much more sensitive, and we're able to detect metastatic disease far earlier than we could have in the past. But from your standpoint as a urologist, you have someone comes in, they had an elevated PSA, they have a biopsy, you know they have prostate cancer now, how's that being incorporated into decisions to go forward with a surgery rather than um, yeah. maybe think of us as a systemic disease, because exactly. we can find it now.
1: Absolutely. And, and that's, that's helped us get patients to the right treatment. Uh, because before, we were limited with just maybe a bone scan and a CT scan, which aren't very smart imaging tests. They, they would miss a lot of metastatic prostate cancer. So we were treating a systemic disease in a lot of men with a local therapy. And when, when the cat is out of the bag already, you know, there's a different type of treatment that they would be a better candidate for. So for people who are very high-risk or high-risk prostate cancer, we're starting to, to make sure that they don't have metastatic disease before we consider them a candidate for local therapy like surgery or radiation. So it's something that as it's becoming more widely available, and this is kind of another, another area where it's an availability and a cost thing as that problem's uh, addressed. It's going to be more commonly used kind of to find out if you're a good candidate for a local therapy before, before pulling the trigger.
0: And then we think about um, how's the world these days from a urology standpoint in terms of thoughts with taking out a prostate even in a setting with, you know, low volume metastatic disease, sort of that control of a primary and a metastatic setting. That's- yeah. There seems to be a sort of resurgence of what do we do in that situation.
1: It it is going to continue, I I expect, uh, because there's always studies showing, you know, even when it's metastatic, that treating the primary source of the cancer where it originated from may have a survival benefit. And then there's other studies that show the exact opposite. So there's a lot, there's a disagreement in the field right now. And I, I think most people are probably in the camp of, well, if it's metastatic, maybe the better uh, is not to treat the primary source of the cancer in the prostate because there is a morbidity associated with it, whether it's radiation or surgery. There um, there's side effects associated with treating the prostate. Um, and whether or not we're going to be helping patients, that's something uh, that's still to be determined. Now In terms of making that surgery
0: as, uh, as uncomplicated for the patient as possible, tell me a little bit about what we're doing with minimally invasive surgery
1: yeah you know that's one of the great things of being here at the Cleveland Clinic we've been leaders in the field of robotic surgery for prostate cancer you know started uh, you know with with some of the giants here Dr. Kayuk, who's a uh, you know very well-known and Dr. Haber who's our chairman you know both are at the forefront of that robotic uh, surgery treatment for prostate cancer and the minimally invasive surgery is getting even more minimal with uh, the single port robotic surgery uh, where we can do the entire surgery through a single incision. So it's a very keyhole surgery. It's practically an outpatient surgery now. So back in, you know, not so distant past, people were in the hospital for a week, a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. Um, and now we're we're getting to a point where we can send people home the same day through a single incision. Pain is well controlled to the point where we don't need to send people home with any narcotics. Tylenol and ibuprofen is pretty much all they need. So, you know, we're taking a surgery that, that was once kind of a, you know, bigger deal and making it more of a, an outpatient approach. And, and again, better, better tolerated, better, uh, better for patients and good cancer outcomes. So it's something that uh, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of patients excited about that as well. That's great. Any, uh, anything else
0: from a surgical side that, uh, that looks promising in prostate cancer?
1: Yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of people pushing the limits in terms of finding ways to make the, the, the surgery better, make the surgery safer, make the surgery uh, less painful. And so, you know, there's some people who are considering doing more focal therapies uh, for prostate cancer, which, you know, uh, is, is, is a growing field. And we offer a few focal approaches. One of them is the HIFU, which is the, uh, the ultrasound ablation of the prostate, where we can target just the area where the cancer was found and leave the rest of the prostate behind. And, and that does a few things. Well, one, it uh, minimizes the side effects. So lower risk of urine issues, lower risk of having erectile issues after surgery, um, and it's uh, also less painful and, and better tolerated. So it's one way that we could, in certain patients who are good candidates for it, uh, where it's just focused into one spot, we can sometimes just ablate that small area or just surgically remove that small area of your prostate. So that's something that we're 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 doing more of. We're having better experience with it. Uh, not surprisingly, when you have. Uh, when you only treat one part of the prostate, you're still at risk of developing cancer in the other parts of your prostate. So it still requires close surveillance afterwards. But in general, people would have fewer side effects, and that's something that we're always trying to trying to find ways to, you know, cure the cancer and do a, a do what's better for the patients in terms of a recovery. Well, that's outstanding,
0: Ziad. You've uh, taken us from screening through biopsies uh, and diagnosis to treatment and. Given us some great uh, updates and insights. Yeah, so. uh, thank you. I,
1: uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, prostate cancer is still the second leading cause of cancer death in men. And that's something that we have a lot of work to do to, to bring that down. And and we've seen it with with screening, a reduction in death and metastatic prostate cancer. But once, it, once it's detected, also finding ways to get better cures and uh, better results. Very good. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much for
0: having me on. To make a direct online referral to our Tosic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancerpatientreferrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify,